Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Luke, welcome back to the Australian Investors Podcast. Thanks for having me on again, Owen. Yeah, second time around, mate. We, yeah. um, well, Raymond interviewed you the first time. Yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how did you come away feeling from that interview? I really enjoyed it. That was uh, that was actually the first podcast uh, recording that I'd done, um, and yeah, had a good time just chatting with uh, chatting with Raymond. Um, I enjoy chatting with anyone generally about investing, so uh, the ability to turn the mic on as well, um, bit of fun. So yeah, yeah, for sure it is. We've got a bit of uh, if you can hear some noise in the background. We are recording from Noosa, the Inside Network event. We've got a lot of uh, consultants, advisors, portfolio managers here talking about all different types of things. So we thought we'd take a moment just to, to chat about um, some of your lessons learned, but also some companies. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping you can really uh, bring some actionable examples because obviously, you know, I think your Twitter bio says, uh, Aussie, I think it says Aussie large caps by day, small caps by night. Yep. I think that's what it says. <laughs> so you eat, sleep and breathe this stuff and you're kind of exposed to a lot of companies that a lot of our community would be exposed to. Yes. Um, and I just hope that uh, we can use some of those examples. Like we're talking about this last night when we caught up uh, about different businesses, about different people, and how that um, the questions you ask and things like that. So, why don't we just start off with if people haven't listened to that first episode? I know Buffett was brought up a bit. Not gonna lie, he was in there <laughs> quite a bit, but uh, it was good. It was a great interview, and I'll put a link in the show notes. Tell us a bit about how you invest, just from like a top-down perspective, how you think about the world of investing and business. So, how I approach investing, both at work and personally, is um, looking for those quality companies, Mm. companies that are going to compound their earnings over time for many years to come, and trying my best to pay uh, what I view as a fair valuation. Um, and anyone that has read anything about Warren Buffett will recognize that instantly because that's more or less what he tries to do. And so it is very difficult to talk about um, mm. uh, investing in my approach without uh, without talking about Uncle Warren. Um, <laughs> and so maybe to just define that yeah, um, sure. a little bit more is looking for companies with uh, an economic moat or a competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. Um 
and that that can come in uh, uh, many forms. Uh, it could be a, a strong brand. It could be uh, low costs. Um, it could be a network effect, uh, like your social media or some social media platforms, mm -hmm. uh, as an example. Um, and basically, all that allows those companies generally to be able to uh, increase their prices well um, above above inflation and be able to uh, charge what what they like for their product uh, without uh, without losing customers. I am. Um I, I know that you've got some great examples in uh, on the website, which we'll get to in a little bit, but you mentioned something there. If I can just cut you off real quick, you mentioned like paying a reasonable price. Yes. How do you determine that? How, are you, like what methods are you using to determine value? So we do use uh, a few methods. My preference is generally wherever possible to use a discounted cash flow okay. because that's what the market uses. Yeah. Uh, and some people will disagree with me there. But my view is that uh, to come up with today's market price of any stock, the, the market in aggregate is forecasting out uh, the cash flows of of a business out into the future for um, any length of time, um, and that's a that's a different uh, conversation. But the market is forecasting the cash flows, and then discounting those back into the, the present value terms. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's what I try and do. I, I come up with my own uh, estimates, and I, I forecast earnings and cash flows out into the future. Come up with a discount rate, uh, which is another conversation again. Um, and use that to come up with a valuation. So that's probably the first one. I, I'll also use uh, multiples as well as sometimes a, a sanity check or maybe a, a quick and dirty method of uh, trying to work out where a company is. Um, I, I might start there and if it looks cheap, I'll then do maybe a DCF afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, How do you, so, sorry, I'm just going to jump in here again. You mentioned there that you determine a discount rate. Yep. This is very contentious part of um, I think I'm jumping ahead of us a bit here because I know we want to talk about this towards the back end of the show. Um, but how do you think about determining a discount rate? Like what inputs go into that? Yeah, so without diving into um, the like textbooks, uh, mm. we use what's called the like capital asset pricing model, which essentially looks at uh, – uh, you, you start with a, a risk-free rate. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what's a 10-year government bond yielding at the moment? Three and a half, four percent 4%. That's what you can get for free, as basically, or yeah. without taking on any risk, rather. Um, and so uh, to invest in stocks, you're going to have to take on more risk. And what do you need to be paid for that, mm -hmm. basically? So you, you look at, okay, what's the market yielding? Um, or what's implied in that, and you sort of you more or less add that on. So if you you got your risk free rate, and then what what do I need to be paid um, to uh, to take on that additional risk? That becomes your your discount rate. And there, there's a few other a few other inputs there, but very simply, that's that's your starting point. And it's uh, it does move around, but it can be anywhere between maybe eight percent up to fifteen percent, depending on the um, that particular uh, kind of business and how volatile it might be. Do you ever do sensitivity analysis or uh, any type of thing around that where you measure the sensitivity of 
your valuations or do you do scenario scenario analysis if i can get that out correctly where you might have a range of valuations or are you looking for like a point in time this is like give or take this is my valuation yeah i, I do prefer to come up with a range because um valuations um are all estimates and so it's it's almost a bit arrogant to say okay that my valuation for whatever stock is three dollars and 51 cents that's what it's worth mm. um so uh to answer your question like yes it, i think it is good practice to actually say well here's here's maybe a bear case here's a here's a bull case and here's a base case and uh, you, you can assign weightings based on very uh, changing various things, and you um, generally I'll keep that discount rate constant, and I'll fiddle with the earnings. Mm. So I'll say, oh, in in a best case scenario, they'll be able to do X, Y, and Z, um, but in a worst case scenario, they might actually go backwards. Yeah, I like that because um, that's where a lot of people struggle with, particularly if they're. They're newer investors and they're newer to value investing as a like an art and a science. They often wonder, well, hey, my valuation's way off. Maybe I'll just tinker with the discount rate, mm. right? Um, but that kind of I maybe I think that maybe detracts from the the skill of investing. Um, whereas you're saying it's more the earnings that can be adjusted yes. from there. Um, okay, so I've gone way off track here, Luke. <laughs> um, but fascinated by that conversation. Um one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, and this is more like kind of like pie and sky, let's look at the top down. I know you're a bottom-up type guy. Mm -hmm. You love fundamentals. We just talked about valuation and so on and so forth. A lot of talk, you know, we've seen some volatility recently. I know you've got a couple of names in the portfolio. You've got, um, as of the date of recording, Altium, which is a technology company, right? Yeah. Um, got other businesses in here that uh, – you know, have been subject to quite a bit of volatility lately. So I guess I'm just trying to get a sense of where you see the investing landscape now. However you want to take this question, maybe it could be in contrast to times gone by. Um, and then maybe we can just dive into it from there. Yeah, sure. So you, you mentioned where we are bottom-up investors and that certainly is um, our core. Yeah, We do try and overlay a, a macro uh, backdrop to that as well so okay. we'll we'll study the businesses and we'll, we'll like that's certainly where we'll start there but then we'll also uh, study the economy what's happening in Australia what's happening in the US and overseas um, and we'll, we'll we'll research that as well and that is also presented uh, to the team as well which feeds into there and depending on what we're we're seeing there we we will uh, tinker with uh, like sector weightings and uh, allocations to particular uh, types of businesses. So, for example, we, we've, we have been reducing names uh, like like your Altiums, which are higher growth, uh, probably higher risk in this sort of uh, environment, seeing, uh, mm. seeing those discount rates or those uh, risk-free rates uh, changing. Mm. Um, and so they are a little bit higher risk at the moment. So yeah, we, we still do own uh, companies like Altium that's certainly still in the portfolio, but that the exposure to those uh, has been decreasing over uh, through 2022. Mm. How about, um, do you have any like hard and fast rules around, so you, you mentioned like that, that macro feeds into asset allocation basically for yep. the portfolio. Um, do you have any sector limits or position limits in the portfolio so do you ever have like 
you know, I speak to some investors are like 20 stocks maximum, 10 stocks is what we aim for. Like, do you have anything like that that feeds in? Yeah. So uh, on a, like a product mandate sort yes, of level, yeah. if you want to talk there, we, so it's between 20 and 50 names. So plenty of breadth. Yeah. Uh, sure. Typically there, where we sit around 35 to 40, we, we find that that's enough diversification to be properly diversified without just getting a market return. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of individual names, it's uh, 5% uh, above the, the benchmark weight. Okay. Um, so, uh, in the, for example, in the large cap Aussie uh, portfolio, you've got some uh, constituents that are already above 5%, like uh, BHP, CSL. Yep. Uh, they're, they're already in your sixes and sevens and eights. Uh, so, we could go up to... Uh, 11% say for those, um, but typically we don't. Generally, we we keep we, we keep um, keep within yeah. uh, much much lower than that. And does the like the portfolio? Because I'm looking at like the top ten holdings, right? And BHP isn't in there. CSL isn't in there. The big banks aren't in there, as far as I can tell right now. And we're recording this in o- early October 2022. Do you find that? Um, you're getting like a mid-cap bias, like you're skewing the portfolio towards a bit more growth? No, it's certainly skewed towards growth, yes. Um, I, I don't think it's uh, skewed towards towards the mid-cap. So that, that large cap, the Australian equities portfolio, um, which you're talking about, it, it is only a, uh, a top 100 or an ASX 100 portfolio. So mm-hmm. Like even towards the the lower end of there, you know, you're probably getting into your uh, your mid caps, but they're all they're all well and truly uh, large caps um, mm. in that portfolio mm. or in that index as well. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I like to ask Luke uh, for bottom up investors like myself, so to have you on the show to treat, um, is basically companies that have taught you investing lessons. I had some analysts on the show not so long ago who talked about the different businesses that they've owned over the past five to 10 years and how that's informed their approach to other companies and their process. Because I find like we can get, you know, like an investing checklist off the shelf, like Buffett's got his five criteria, but then we find, you know, oh, I, I've found the longer investors go that they can kind of make it their own. So, do you have any examples? I, I, when I sent you the questions, I asked for three companies. You don't have to have three necessarily, but some companies that have taught you those investing lessons that have helped you then grow as an investor. Yeah, sure. So the biggest lessons I find generally come from your biggest losses or uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, in some cases uh, what you've missed out on. So um, the, the first one that I thought taught me several lessons over a period of a few years was Afterpay, which mm, uh, the I company, <laughs> yeah, the, the company or the, the business is probably um, not uh, not news to, to most people uh, listening out there. But I actually, I came across Afterpay pretty early back when uh, it was, uh, back, back before it actually merged with TouchCorp, hmm. which is going back maybe five or six years now. So how the story goes is, Afterpay was spun out of TouchCorp with a, a few guys um, that, that were working there at the time um, who, who then became the, the CEOs. But, but TouchCorp retained 30% um, mm. of Afterpay and Afterpay 
grew so strongly, even in those those early days. I think it grew from a dollar to two dollars fifty or something. That Afterpay on the on the balance sheet of TouchCorp, the value was worth more than the TouchCorp shares itself. Hmm. So you could have bought uh, shares in TouchCorp and basically got the Afterpay shares for free. Hmm. Um, and so uh, I didn't end up acting on that. Uh, and basically, what that taught me was you should back yourself because you found this uh, this thing that probably not many people were looking at at the time. Um, and yeah, then it got to what one hundred and sixty dollars. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, well, why did yeah. Do you remember why you said no? Was it just did you just doubt that this was like too good to be true? Or yeah, I I, I think I started to to think about the valuation of Afterpay too much. Okay. Um, and thought, okay, well, the that what the market's describing to that um, in that section of Afterpay that TouchCore owns, uh, as soon as Afterpay goes back to a dollar, then it, you're back to square one. And yeah. in the end, that, that's not what happened, clearly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And sometimes that could happen though, right? Like if you look through a portfolio, like say Washington Sol Pattinson is a yeah. good example of yeah. this because they own Chuas, they own you know, uh, New Hope, Brickworks, all that sort of stuff. And those are publicly listed yes. companies inside of Brickworks, yes. uh, inside of Solpats. So that could happen. Yes. So that's- it's probably more like the conservative side. Like you realize that could happen. Yes. It just happens that this one went on a uh, 150x. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that happens. But that, that's a really good example. And so having the conviction to back yourself. So did, did you bring three companies to the table? I did actually. Okay, cool. So, okay, yeah, cool. Got, okay, this is great. Yeah, 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 let's, yeah. let's so do it. The next one is uh, a little company that is no longer listed called uh, RXP Services. The code was yeah. RXP. So they were a, uh, basically an IT body shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they had uh, contractors they would, that they would send out to big companies like uh, NAB and Telstra and uh, other companies like that. And they, they would do it's basically outsourced um building of their apps and it uh, things like that that the companies like nab just didn't want to do themselves and so it it was an okay business um but it it was a roll-up okay and they 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 did fine they went from i can't remember what they listed i think i got got shares at 55 cents they went up to a dollar 20 which was great and then they went down to 30 cents and i think i got out at about 55 cents after a few years and so um about 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 break even about break even yeah Yeah, so i um, didn't lose money but didn't make money on them but Mm -hmm. i I probably learned two two lessons there is uh roll-ups are great until they're not yep so there comes a point in every roll-up um, and for the, for those that don't know what a roll-up is, it's basically they it's a, a listed company going around buying private companies um, and getting a, a valuation arbitrage. So uh, that that's great. That feeds into the the company stock price, um, and it um, it increases over time, which is great. And then they run out of things to to buy, mm. um, and then that high multiple that the stock has been priced on is no longer worth it anymore because there's nothing more to buy. There's no more growth. Um, and now it's this business, which is probably still uh, an okay business, but there's no growth mm. because they've, they've only grown by by acquisition. The other lesson that I learned from RXP is just because it's 
cheap is not a good enough reason to hold on to it or even to buy it. So it, the uh, the stock ran all the way up to I think it was a dollar twenty mm. from memory, and it was still on eight times. Hmm. Um, and so, so you thought maybe it could go higher? Yeah, well, I thought oh it, maybe it should be trading on twelve times or thirteen times, but eight times just seems too cheap. I'm going to hold. Um, and then it, yeah, it, it fell. Yeah, it, un- it unwound. That's right. And so, uh, in the end, yeah. Do you think though that? So do you think like one of the lessons there is because it was a lower quality company, your expectations were too high? Yeah, I think that's probably right. Yeah, yeah. So the lesson maybe is then like just understand the quality of the company when making that assessment yep. of earnings. Yep. Yeah. Okay, that's a good one. I, actually, yeah. I did hear about it because it was very. I feel like it was a popular company amongst microcap investors. Mm. Um, not one that I ever looked at. Um, probably should have. Um, about what's number three? Okay, the third one company everyone's probably heard of is uh, BHP. Okay, yeah, so, I think I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I gave that nice, li- nice little spiel at the top about uh, the type of companies we look for um, and companies with pricing power and. Uh, an economic moat and yeah. whatever else. Um, commodities generally don't fit that profile, um, and so it's a, BHP as a uh, as a business is not one that generally meets a lot of our criteria or my criteria personally uh, as an investor. And anyone that's uh, seen the the iron ore price in the mm. last year or so, or even the share price of BHP, uh, it's had a phenomenal run. Um, and what that taught me is some businesses don't fit into uh, your your neat little uh, valuation mindset, mm. um, but they need to be analysed differently. And so BHP as, um, as a as a company, it it is a really low cost producer. Uh, so being the size that they are. Uh, they can, they can pull the iron ore out of the ground at about $14 a ton and then they were selling it for 120 uh, I think there's a margin in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so the, the way to think about BHP is, uh, and all, all commodity producers for that matter, I just pick BHP as the, uh, the biggest and the hairiest. Mm. Um, the way to think about that is that as, a, as a cyclical. So you... What, watch the cycles, watch the, um, the economic cycle and the iron ore cycle. Um, it's sort of clear when it's the top and it's sort of clear when it's the bottom. Like uh, a, f- a few years ago, uh, might have been 2016, they were, they were at $8 and people in, the, people in the media were actually contemplating, oh, is BHP actually going to go bust? Mm. Um, yeah, well, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the end, they didn't even go close, and then they they got to well over fifty not that long ago. It's come back a little bit now with the, the iron ore price. Huge dividends along the way. Huge dividends. That's right. So, yeah, right. I like mm. it. So, because, and I think this is a, this is a struggle that I've had throughout my time investing too. To be honest, is how like a set framework. Like we kind of get um, values given to us when we read or we learn from other investors or even indeed listen to podcasts. Like, for example, Buffett never invested in gold. So, well, if he doesn't do it, then Mm. I shouldn't do it, right? And we can become a bit, I guess, this is outline in the sand and then I don't step over that side because this guy said don't do it, you know? So, for 
for you to say that, then let's like talk about a different framework for that. I think that's that's really important to have that mental flexibility as well. That's right. Yeah. Um, so we've gone from three companies that have taught you lessons, and now I'm going to ask you to be a bit more forward-looking. Logan. Can you, um, as we record this, maybe think about three business models or businesses that are really interesting to you right now? Yeah, I, I probably haven't thought too far out of the box in uh, in trying to answer Sometimes this question. Best. Sometimes it is. Um, so at at the moment in the current uh, like economic climate, I, I still really like enterprise SaaS, enterprise SaaS businesses. Yep. So businesses that are fairly entrenched in business workflows that have that recurring revenue that even though the economy might be going through uh, a bit of a rough patch uh, right now or uh, in the, the, the coming future, that they're still going to be able to earn that recurring revenue. Mm. Um, and yes, their, their growth might be lower because it might be a little bit more difficult to, to onboard the next customer, but the customers that they have will, will hang on. So... Um, Two, two examples that, that come to mind would be like a zero. Yep. Uh, that's your accounting software. It doesn't matter what the economy is doing. That's probably the last expense that you're going to cut. Yeah. We're uh, talking to someone last night about zero. Yes, we and were. And like, now yeah. I don't see this changing. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Um, and then uh, another one uh, is probably Adobe again. Yep. Uh, if you're a uh, – if you work for a creative agency um, – you that, again, that's the last expense that you're going to cut because you you can't do any work without Photoshop or yeah. Premiere or whatever it happens to be, yeah. whatever that project is. It's um, and yeah. le- unless you're going out of business, you're you're going to pay that subscription. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. It's a really good example. Um, they did buy Figma they recently did. for twenty billion. Do you have any views on that? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do. I, I still don't mind it. I think. The uh, the market's probably overreacted a little bit to that uh, to that acquisition. They they're probably overpaying uh, a, a bit. Uh, I mean, fifty times recurring revenue is up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's on twenty billion dollar yeah. price tag. It's uh, yeah. yeah. So Figma's I, a good program. Though. Yeah, having used it, I think it's great. Okay. Yeah. Um. I I, I think I, I think it'll do a, a great thing for for Adobe. Like they're obviously. Uh, it's fairly early in the Figma journey, which they're they're paying for a lot of that that future, and they will be able to to utilize a lot of the technology that Figma has used and deploy that across their their mm. own suite. So, in some sense, I think it's Adobe saying uh, we've we've missed the boat a little bit here, um, and that they're, they're having to to mm. pay for that. But I I, th- I think they will be able to benefit from it. Mm. I like it. Um, so that's number. That's the, I guess that's the model is SaaS. Yeah. Have you got any others for us? Yeah. So uh, another one is retailers, but retailers with a strong brand. Interesting. So the, there's plenty of retailers uh, that are listed, but it's the, the ones with a strong brand that are m- most interested at the moment. So um, uh, I did pull out a couple of examples. Yeah. Um, Nick Scarly uh, was one. Yep. The, the, um, very, very quality. Uh, products, as far as I can tell, I've been a customer there myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, good. and still, still run by the family. Um, I think it's Nick, 
uh, Nick Scarley's son, Anthony, that's currently hmm. uh, the the CEO, and they still own plenty of shares. So still very incentivized. Um, Premier Investments have a couple of really strong brands as well. Yeah, uh, Smiggle. Yeah. Smiggle and Peter Alexander. Yeah. Um, and probably also one by one of the best retailers uh, in the world in Solomon Lou. Yep. Um, in, at least in Australia, I should say. Yeah. Um, the, the last example, probably not a, as strong a brand, but still a very good retailer, um, is uh, Levisa. Yeah. And that's run um, by, well, not run, but Brett Blundy. Yes. Who's and, another, and another, another very great, good. like a yes. veteran of retail in yes, Australia. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so there are the, the retailing, yeah. Uh, listed space is currently uh, very cheap yeah um uh, on some you can get some for around 10 times earnings levis is not quite as cheap because they they do have a bit more of a growth path ahead of them uh, rolling out stores uh, across the world but yeah that it's a space that looks quite quite interesting which is moment. interesting right in itself because we're talking about retailers exactly the same time people are talking about recession yes you know but this, the numbers seem to suggest that people are still spending that's right. Re, re, uh, retail uh, retail sales was up nineteen percent on last year's admittedly depressed uh, retail uh, mm. spending level. But yeah, uh, people are still spending yeah. uh, all the um, the cash that they've been hoarding over the pandemic. Yeah, even here in Noosa, you see it down the street. Yeah. Every uh, retailer, every shop is asking for staff, mm. and you only take on staff if you're making money. So. Um, obviously, this is a bit more um, on the nose for employment with um, like backpackers and all that sort of stuff, but really interesting nonetheless. Okay, so SaaS retailers, very different. High margin, low margin. What's the third one? Uh, third one is online platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I, I do um, I do still like a good old fashioned online platform. And what I'm talking about there is businesses that bring together uh, a buyer and a seller and create a marketplace for them. So, uh, for example, car sales seek, uh, REA.com, mm-hmm. uh, all really good examples in the uh, Australian uh, market. And what tends to happen there is they, the first mover tends to have the advantage and it becomes a, a winner-takes-most market. Mm. And... I'm just talking about the business model here. You, you can you can have your own, your own views on uh, the the valuation and the attractiveness of those uh, businesses sure. in the market. But uh, as a business model, I, I think they're still excellent. Mm. And I think that's. Um, I was looking at car sales recently with Trader Interactive, their expansion mm-hmm. into the RV and power sports market in the US. Uh, really interesting. Seek is obviously doing different things. Um, in China, but also with their growth fund. Um, I think, yeah, it's it's really interesting because a lot of people, when they think about platforms, they think about, like, say, Facebook's dying or something like this. They think there's too many ads. or But when you control the ecosystem, it's very valuable. You have a lot of strings that you can pull on the way up and on the way down. That's right. You can increase prices. You can increase ad count. You can reduce ad count. And there's no shortage of businesses in the world wanting customers. So if you control the ecosystem... Um, and if you can connect someone to their customers, yeah, it's they're winning. So as long as they keep winning, then that's all you need to worry about, really. I really like that. So we've gone from SaaS retail and platforms, and you've given us some examples to go along with it. Um, there is one final question um, before I let you get back to the conference, Luke. So thanks for spending some time with me here. Um, is a question we spoke about last night, which is like, who are the investors 
that you look to, you have learned from or admired um, over time, over the course of your career? So uh, I'll get Warren Buffett out of the way really quickly. So we've we've talked about him uh, plenty, but basically um, learning from him through his letters and people writing about him, there's uh, 2001 books uh, written about uh, Warren Buffett. Is that right? It's 2001. No, I made that up. (laughs) (laughs) But there's there's plenty of them. I took that literally. (laughs) So good. Um, But... Yeah, basically uh, what I learned from him is buy quality businesses and try not to overpay. Um, But the other thing that he talks about a lot, which uh, investors don't tend to focus on as much, is um, making sure businesses that you invest in have a higher return on invested capital than their weighted average cost of capital, Mm. which um, sounds really technical, but um, essentially uh, just to explain that, uh, a mm. little bit the, the the capital in the business is what investors have put in there to run the business, which is either uh, like investors holding shares or debt holders. Mm-hmm. There's a cost that comes along with that. With uh, with debt, it's really easy. It's just uh, whatever the uh, the market price of the debt is or the interest rate is. Um, mm-hmm. For it's a little bit more difficult on the uh, for equity holders, but it's essentially an an opportunity cost. So. Um, it's in, all that to say there is a cost of the capital that goes into the business uh, and you want whatever return that the business is earning from positive. that investment to be higher than that. Um, and if it's not, the, the share price is probably going to go nowhere. So mm. anyway, um, second one, um, I've learned a lot from Howard Marks uh, over the years, but particularly his lessons on uh like everything is a cycle, particularly mm. in the economy, particularly in uh, in mar- like investment markets. Um, you, you'll see it swing. It's like a pendulum. There is an equilibrium and it'll swing and it'll hit an equilibrium and it'll just go right on through. Mm. Um, and so we're, we're sort of seeing that at the moment. It's been a tremendous bull run. Uh, which has been great for investors. And then uh, uh, now this year, 2022, we've seen that swinging. Back the other way. Back the other way. That's right. And so you really don't see it turn until that that last investor sells or that last investor buys and then there's no more buyers. Mm. Um, And so there's a lot of uh, fear in the market at the moment. Um, I, I saw a chart this morning. Uh, the fear, the fear and greed index is bumping up against uh, um, on the the fear end of the scale hmm. at the moment, um, and so that will that will turn eventually. Um, don't ask me when it will be, uh, uh, but yeah, everything's a pendulum. Yep, I like it. Yeah. So you've gone from Buffett to Howard Marks, probably two of the biggest names in the mm-hmm. business, maybe alongside Ray Dalio, but. Um, yeah, I like it. Yeah. I need to read more of Howard Marks. Yeah, he's got two really good books, which I, I think I talked about with Raymond yeah. uh, last time. Both both worth a read. Mm, I like it. Um, and the last one, I'm glad I didn't pick Ray Dalio for this for this last <laughs> one. <laughs> um, uh, Michael Malbison, yeah. um, who he's an academic and he, he, he speaks very academically is what I mean by that. Um, and so some of his stuff is fairly, fairly high level. Um, but the the one investment lesson I've taken from him is all about uh, expectations in markets. So you can 
you can do all the forecasts that you like, but uh, and you you'll come up with a, a forecast for a business. But everyone else is doing that mm. as well. And I talked about at the beginning that the market is already forecasting cash flows into the future and discounting those back uh, to find a price. If everyone knows that a, a business is going to increase at 20 time, uh, 20% per year for the next 10 years, then they're going to price that accordingly. And there's actually, there's no margin there for you to, to have an edge. You need to understand those expectations first come up with your own expectations and see where, where they differ. Then you can start to come up with a different opinion to the market uh, and ma make investing decisions accordingly. So it's very easy to identify a high quality company. Like anyone can do that. The mm. hardest thing is uh, coming up with that valuation that's actually different to, to what the market uh, is seeing. I think that's, um, yeah, really apt, really succinct. Like when you talked about uh, TouchCorp before, mm. you come up with your own, you, it wasn't necessarily discounted cash flow analysis. You could look at the balance sheet and be like, they got this many shares of Afterpay, but Afterpay is worth this. So this is worth a lot. Um, but then it's having the conviction to back those that's ideas. That's right. You know, and that's, um, I think where it comes uh, with a bit of experience now, you can look back on that and you can think, okay, the market is clearly doing this. I'm being contrarian. I know that because this is my valuation. But I'm okay with that. And you have to kind of own that. That's right. And I think a lot of people do tend to struggle with that at times. I know I do. And um, what do you use? So just, just one final little thing in here. What, how do you get a sense of what the market is thinking? Are there any heuristics that you follow? Yeah, so that's a great question because he talks about that uh, in his book, uh, Expectations Investing. So mm -hmm. he, he does – talk about a discounted cash flow model, but he he's flips it on its head. So he'll do his forecast and he'll he'll have his, uh, his discount rate that he's assuming that the market is using. And then he'll say, okay, well, how many years of profits or cash flows are, is the market uh, actually forecasting for? Mm. Uh, so it, it might be uh, 10 years is the, like the DCF model that uh, the market is implying. Um, and then you, you can sort of use that mm. uh, in your own process. Mm. I like it. Yeah. So one of the things that um, I learned pretty early on is the value in reversing a DCF. Yes. I haven't read the book, unfortunately, but um, I remember doing that with PayPal back in the day and thinking like, it was a very simple model of um, the number of users and revenue per user to get to you know, multiple of revenue and then down to free cash flow. I remember looking at that and thinking, Instead of me trying to pick what price target I should have for PayPal, it's easier just to set the, the, the valuation at the stock price and then understand what needs to go yes, backwards from that. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that was interesting because like I could see at the time, I think it was the market was forecasting, like I think it was like a 7% growth in revenue or something at the time. I was looking at this, I was like, this thing's going to grow a lot faster. Like you look at the industry, it's growing fast. Um, it's also a griller. So yeah. it's going to take more share. Um, that was the idea on the way up and then it subsequently fell. <laughs> so write it up and write it down. Yeah. Um, but mate, this has been a, this has been heaps of fun. So you've brought some really good company examples to the table, some lessons learned over your journey. And um, you know, you've been doing this a while, so I really appreciate that, um, that you can take some time out of the, the conference here. 
Uh, if people want to follow you on Twitter, what's your Twitter handle? So you can find me at Luke Durbin. Yep. Um, just Super simple. simple. Luke yep. Durbin. Yep. And um, I'll put the link to that in the show notes. Very good. And then uh, on the website too, if people want to find out, where do they go? So our, our website is oracleim.com.au. Simple. Yep. I like it. And if you click on the investment management tab in the top menu there, you'll see uh, all the different funds and uh, you'll be able to see letters and those types of things. So, Luke, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Owen. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees and 1000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. Designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.